desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. I wrote it very much to be a book to be discussed by families. This is author Heather Sappenfield talking about her new novel, The River Between Hearts. It's an adventure with an almost 11-year-old girl named Rill. It's a story about friendship and compassion and loss and longing. We begin our chat talking about her pitch for why we should all be reading middle grade fiction. And here is my strong belief about middle grade books. You know, it's written for those younger readers, right? Yeah. But they're smart and their minds are so agile, maybe more agile than our adult minds that get conditioned in certain ways of thinking. And so there is just a ton of good middle grade literature out there filled with this sort of depth. Every adult should read at least one middle grade book a year, because what happens is middle grade novels tend to have hope in them. Mm. They tend to be hopeful. And you get into YA and there's the angst, and then you get into adult novels and there's often so much melancholy, you know? And so it's just kind of, you're, it's good for the soul to go back and remember, oh, that's right. I was like that. I think that's brilliant advice. Feeling down, read a middle grade book. You're going to come out feeling better. <laughs> you just are. That's so interesting that a middle grade author that's has to use simple language to still, though, tackle big concept thing. This is the most difficult book for me to write that I've had because it's such craft to get it into that simple, direct language that is true to the voice of the character. It was hard. So how did you do that? As an author, I think we authors write from our obsessions and we all have obsessions, right? And they can be positive or negative. They can be sports or food or things we see and experience. Um, And I taught high school and I saw some things when I was there that stuck with me. A few different things that became obsessions. One of them was about my became my first novel um, when I lost three students to suicide. And what I saw in this book stuck with me. And one day a character shows up. Oh, a character just shows up. Wow. Okay. And then I, you know, it's weird. It's my unconscious undoubtedly, but real showed up and she was stomping along the banks of the Creek and she was fully formed. I mean, she was who she was and she was angry and frustrated, but also just a hoot. (laughs) As I was with her for about a year, I just listened to her and watched her. I realized that she was the perfect person to tell the story, naive and straightforward. Yeah. So Rill's story is really understanding grief. Yes. You are really exploring all the different stages of how we come to accept loss. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. We can tell readers that she's lost her father. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Yeah. But in the very beginning, we're not sure exactly what happened to him. And what, what goes on in the beginning of the book is that she is an unreliable narrator, but we don't realize it for a while. And so that was wonderful to realize that she was going to be unreliable to herself, literally, as we all are. And then as the story goes along, we start to understand, oh, you know, real, real. (laughs) This is what's going on. And so um, what happens with that? And this is what I was hoping for. And this is also why I realized, oh, almost 11 is a fabulous age is because We really step into her shoes and what that allows us to feel for her is compassion and empathy. Mm. It generates empathy and all of her physical sensations bring us physically right into the story with her. Yes. And then we're there with her in empathy as she starts to understand empathy for someone else. Yes. That is one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. She's, and you just mentioned physical change, right? She's resisting this thought that she's growing or that she's changing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she goes to put on the backpack that she's trying to make it fit. She's helping someone else. And the backpack is full of something to help someone else. And in that moment, it doesn't fit. And so she has to make it a little bigger. Yeah. Almost as if embracing the compassion for another individual has also made her embrace physically that growth. Yeah, I'm getting a little tear in my eye. I love it when readers just get, I, I love to put layers and layers and layers of meaning so that each reader can find how deep they want to go, right? And you got that, you know, that metaphor for, yes, she's growing. She's growing, yeah. Yes, so she grows in her relationship with a young girl named Perla. And one of the things that I liked about how she discovers her and how they sort of start growing this friendship is reading as an adult, you realize this child is in, she's in danger. She's either run away from home or something. I was sort of in a panic for her. Yes. But you know, our protagonist that we're reading the story through is she's kind of problem solving, but she's also just kind of like, well, I'll check on her tomorrow or what. You know, <laughs> this girl is, um, I don't want any spoilers. So I think that happens early enough in the book that we meet Perla and we know that she's, she's kind of out in the forest. Yeah. You know, discovering that relationship and discovering how they can help each other was a really beautiful part of the book for me. So I guess that really gets to the heart of what you just said about compassion and that empathy and compassion for others helps us grow as humans. Yeah, so real and actually her entire family are pretty stuck. They're all kind of coping in their own way. And um, her family is our river guides in the summer and snowmobile guides in the winter. But what I realized, again, you realize things after you've written the book when you're talking about it with other people. But I started to realize, oh, my gosh, in this book, real actually becomes the guide for the family, bringing them back. You know what I mean? Like, yes guiding through troubled waters. Exactly, exactly. And so um, she actually helps bring them back through this experience. And but they're all stuck until real discovers this stowaway in her tree for it. And through that sort of mirror, um, starts to see her own life and has to deal with deal with stuff. Yeah. Yes, she rides a bike. 
um, she gets on the bike and it, it gives her her own autonomy to, to just get out and about. And so I read then on your website that you are an avid biker. Yes, I am. I am. It's been, it's a way of life in our household. And actually here in the Vale Valley, it's sort of a way of life for a lot of us as well. Um, but yes, I, I love it. And that's how my husband and I both have e-bikes and we have one car and we don't drive the car a lot in the summer and get around that way. And I have mountain biked throughout my adult life and, and had some great adventures, mountain biking, 24 hour racing and the world championships and national championships, which has been really fun. But then I also was lucky enough to be on a women's team for the race across America, which was from San Diego, California that year to Atlantic City, New Jersey. It's a relay race. There were four of us women nonstop. It was a rolling like organization and RVs and chase vehicles and things like that. Um, But yeah, we came in at just under a week. Um, I think we might have the record for the fastest crossing, but yeah. That sounds very competitive to me, not necessarily fun, but you're saying it is, it also is a great source of, of joy, of fun for you. It is a source of joy and fun. And for me, it's not so much about the competitive. I'm not very, actually very good at being competitive, but what I am, what I love is adventure. I love going into the dark places and testing yourself. And I think as I've gotten further down my writing path, I've been doing a little bit less of those big adventures because the writing itself is so adventurous, you know, so that character shows up and they go into your obsession, right? And they explore your obsession. And as a writer, I, it takes a lot of courage on my part sometimes to go where they need to go um, because they're things that are uncomfortable or perhaps scary to me. Um, but I need to stick with it to go there. And it's interesting, you know, I, I, I can tell when I'm starting to steer, okay, we're not going to go there. You try to start to find it to control a story and, you know, move it, you know, over here. Oh no, let's, let's not head that direction. But, you know, I'm a mentor to writers, other writers now. And when I read other writers and, and maybe you've experienced it too, but there's these books, you know, you can always tell these books start out and they're so compelling and you're right there with them. And then they kind of fizzle out and they lose their momentum and you lose the interest. And frequently what's happened is the writer has steered the story away from what the real work needed to be. And so, yeah, so that's writing is the most adventurous thing I do. That is such a fascinating analogy to me that that the physical adventures, which are very easy for me to understand the walls that you have to push up against when you're having a physical adventure or challenge. That wall is muscle strength. That wall is heart strength and lung strength, right? Uh But to draw that analogy to how difficult it is to craft a story and let your characters go where they need to go and, and what needs to come out of you to tell that story. Uh Uh-huh. Is it really, that's a fascinating analogy. Yeah, I think it's a very implicit, unconscious connection between the reader and the writer. And I firmly believe that both of us know on both ends what's going on. It's very implicit. Mm. And, and we have, that's why sometimes are you really connect with the book? You really love a book because you're actually reaching into sort of the soul and the spirit. You're sharing that mutual experience together. 
Oh, that's, that's very profound. I believe it. That's really beautiful. I don't think I'd ever really, I don't think I've ever really thought of it that way. That's, but I, I agree. I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh huh. You, you know, when I'm scribbling notes and thinking, oh, I love the way they did that. Uh-huh. It's really more, it's more than the words on the page. It really is a, an essence of another person, of the author. Exactly. Exactly. And when we're watching and that author is willing to go to those places with, you know, and we're willing and we can go there with them, they are helping us just like Perla helps real. They're being that mirror for us to help on the journey with our own growth. Okay, that's a good place to pause our conversation with Heather and spend a few minutes with her characters, Rill and Perla. This is a scene where Rill describes Perla's gift for singing. It hints at the loss they both are struggling with. When we pick back up with Heather, we will chat about why she creates characters who have dyslexia and how a real-life Perla informed the character. This is a reading from The River Between Hearts, written by Heather Mateus Sappenfield. Read by me, Teresa Bakken. What she was good at was singing. Once she was comfortable being at Cruise Whitewater Adventures, she sang when she walked, sang when she drew stuff, sang when she played Parcheesi, sang when she ate lunch sang when she arm-wrestled, sang when she shot the slingshot, sang when she rode on the back of the stingray. "'You're the singingest girl I've ever seen,' Joyce said one day. Perla taught me songs, one called Las Mañanitas. She said Mexicans sang at birthdays and special times. She taught me the Mexican national anthem. She taught me Cielito Lindo, that first song she'd sung." I loved to belt out the ay-ay-ay-ay part. My singing was scratchy and awful, but Perla's was so clear and pretty. Still, I didn't care because, like with reading, it was just us two. My favorite song was La Cucaracha. I'd heard it before at school and assumed it was just a game, like the chance when we jumped rope. But in Mexico, Perla told me, it was a traditional song. An important song that everybody knew. Its beginning went, La cucaracha, la cucaracha, which meant, the cockroach, the cockroach. I could not believe there was an important song about a nasty old bug. But Perla insisted it was true. The song's eight lines told how the cockroach lost one of its legs but limped on. Its rhythm, she explained, matched that limp. Right after she said that, our eyes locked, because we understood how that felt. We started singing La Cucaracha all the time. We'd make up our own words, goofy stuff, usually, hilarious stuff sometimes, that made us laugh till we doubled over. Each time I bent over laughing, though, I could feel something bubbling inside, something down deep, 
something bigger, stronger, and scarier than anything I'd faced before. So Will has dyslexia and I have dyslexia. So I always like to include characters with dyslexia in, in stories. They have just a different way of moving through the world. Yes. And, you know, often it is hereditary and she definitely got it from her dad. It's never stated, but, you know, he reads to her and, and he taught her about art and drawing and all those things. And so she very much takes after her dad. And it's one of the ways, you know, through that book that he would read to her that, she can sort of conjure him. It brings back the physical sense of him again, you know, the smell of the warm shirt and the sun. So I think I was writing to sort of the power of reading, or maybe it would, for someone else, it would be a song that can bring back that time and that place. And, and, And for her, she just keeps doing it again and again and again to bring him back. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad you brought up that about dyslexia because I love the way that she explains it, that the words are okay inside her, but it's the it's the coming in and going out that are tricky sometimes. And it was very easy to understand what she meant. Oh, good. I'm glad. You know, there's so many different types of dyslexia and different ways that it manifests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's hard to, you know, nece- necessarily pigeonhole it, but it definitely, that's how she feels. Like I understand myself. I can talk to myself just fine, but, you know, getting it out there and that can be tough. And so she really has to work at that to get things in and out. But that again was also meant as a metaphor for, you know, what she's going through, you know, she's, she feels like she's doing okay inside. She feels like she knows herself, um, but the stuff going in and out, she, she can't quite identify with. And she says, it's a bit of an ironic metaphor because she really feels like she's okay inside, but she's, yeah. And this all sounds sort of heavy, but really it's very lighthearted. I hope in the way that it's told. It is. People should know it's an adventure story. Yes it's an adventure story, but it does, you have woven through some very deep water ideas, right? Yeah, definitely. Do you want to tell me at all about where the title came from? Oh, geez. I can't even claim the title. A friend of mine, Todd Mitchell, who's a fabulous author as well. And he writes middle grade and young adult read and critiqued the book and helped it along. And, and um, he suggested the title and I was like, that's the title. Thank you. And I just love it because it literally, you know, her family lives on a river that's a tributary to the Colorado River. And then the Colorado River flows all the way down to Mexico. And so there's that river between hearts that way. But it also worked for me. And well, there's the river between the hearts of the characters, you know, and how it connects in the family. But then there's also, I hope this sense that the book itself in the way that it's written with those water themes also becomes sort of a river between the hearts of the reader and real and then the hearts of the readers and their communities and connecting them um, modeling for them how compassion and empathy can work and then how they can reach out and share that river so to speak in their communities you have another whole whole aspect of this story 
that um, you just sort of touched on when you said the river goes all the way to Mexico and how that's significant in this story. There's a scene when they go to the library and they look at a map and she sort of traces that how far it is from here to the where it ends up in Mexico. Yeah. Do you want to talk at all about your inspiration for where did Perla come from? Let me backtrack and just say one of my favorite things to write about are the moments when we meet someone who is other, Mm. quote unquote, and how we act in those moments when we meet someone other is defining. It it tells a lot about who we are in that moment, um, what our fears are and our own weaknesses in that moment. And so I love to write about those intersections and because really they can be the most beautiful, among the most beautiful we can have as humans, those intersections. But inherent in writing about that is I always have to write about the other. I tend to write from the perspective that I know, um, but the other, then I have to be very, very careful. So in writing Perla's character, I worked with some former immigrant students that I had had while I was at Battle Mountain High School up here in the Vale Valley, and they really helped me shape the character and form it. Um, I also had a girlfriend who lived in Mexico City who, you know, helped a lot with the songs and what songs would they sing, you know, because songs are a huge part of Mexican culture and their and and their pride in their culture. And they have these songs that they hold on to and, and love. So I wanted to get all those details right. And it took a long time to get them right. And some of the things they told me and showed me broke my heart. Like it was just so rough and so difficult. And it really made me realize, you know, that how much I have the luxury often of just indifference. And one of the, one of the students actually helped me to such an extent that it's Perla's story is very much her own and she will receive half of the royalties from the book. So yeah, she, would like to remain anonymous, but yeah. I think that's fantastic that it wasn't just a fictional character that you created and you could, you could read in the local news about the situation that that child would have been in or that her parents would have been in. And and we're talking about immigration and deportation. And I love though, that it was for you, it was important to incorporate a real person's life experience. I think that's part that, that comes through in the story. I needed for everything about it to be very real. There's a lot of science of late too about um, the power of reading to generate empathy and compassion. And the more realistic the book, the more compassion and empathy is created. And I wrote this book straight toward that end. And, you know, books are just these fabulous places, especially when you're young, to go in and observe and practice mentally and emotionally those patterns of compassion and empathy. And then if it's reinforced through discussion with family or in a classroom, then we've got those pathways started. And then later in life, when someone encounters that, they've already had that condition that helps them move forward. So that is really my main hope with this, with this book. Yes. A quick word about the difference between empathy and sympathy. So inherent in sympathy is pity. Mm. And pity means 
other. You're looking down on someone. You're at a distance from them and you feel sorry for them, but you aren't understanding them. It's separate. There's still that layer where you don't even necessarily view them as the same or equal. And so my hope with this book is not sympathy, because that's something else entirely, but empathy. So viewing, oh, okay, we are all people here who are pursuing a good life. Um, we are all humans. And, and the empathy that comes from that. Empathy is scary, because empathy means you have to open your heart, right? Um, literally, you have to open your heart to, to someone else to feel that way. And so that's why empathy is hard. And that's what I hope the book does, though, is that it models that opening the heart, the river between hearts, and empathy can occur. That's great. Well, I usually ask a final question about essential things. I feel like we've hit a lot of essential things. You'll probably do that thing where you go, I'm not sure what I have to add to that, Teresa. <laughs> we've been talking for an hour about that but so the podcast is called Desideratum yes there's a poem called Desiderata that was on the wall when I was growing up my grandma had it on the wall yes yes so so when I was thinking about what I wanted the the main idea for the podcast to be in addition to just sort of featuring the great talents of authors and narrators in their work I wanted it to be about things that were essential. So usually the last question I ask is for you, if you had to explain to somebody, these things are essential to me, what would you say? Well, I would want to say empathy because we've talked about that quite a lot with the book. But I think I will go to the title, which is The Heart. Hmm. And especially coming out of COVID and the state that our nation is in and with all of such dissent, I, I think what we need to really consider is our willingness as to open our hearts. I think it was easy for us during this pandemic to really sort of shut down and close our hearts. And granted, you can look on social media and feel badly and you can donate money here and there and things like that, that all can be done at arm's length. But within your friendships, within your family, within whatever ways that you can truly have that like adventure in your heart that can be scary can you reach out and can you are you willing to risk connecting with someone I think that's pretty that would be essential to me is that is getting back to that all right well you know what it might backfire I might get hurt I'm gonna be okay but I'm gonna keep reaching out with my heart to do the right thing and to make these connections and to have that empathy that's great I love that. That's perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. I also want to thank Heather's publicist, Jackie Carnath, at Books Forward, a JKS communications company, and her publisher, Janie Royal, at Fitzroy Books, an imprint of Regal House Publishing. You can find all of Heather's books on her website, and learn more about having her visit you at your school or favorite bookstore. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
This has been Episode 52. As always, thank you for listening.